This morning, I want to share something that's very close uh, and dear to my heart and to all of us. And I'm going to talk about the mission of God. Let's pray. Father, we just are grateful that your presence is here. Lord, there's no doubt about it that you are here walking in the midst of us. And we would see Jesus. We would hear from him. We would have his spirit move inside of us. Lord, we want faith, Lord, to rise to the level that you, you're calling us to in this day and time when the whole earth is being filled with your glory. And so we thank you this morning and we just continue to welcome whatever you want to do and whatever you want to say and whatever you want to produce in us. Lord, how we love you. And we love you because we know you first loved us. We thank you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I was 16 years old when I first asked Jesus Christ to come into my life, to be my Lord and my Savior, which was very unusual because I did not come from a Christian home. I did not come from people who really, a family that was loving but didn't understand what it was to be a true follower and a true servant of the Lord. And so the fact that I came home from a church service, much like what you all did with the youth, I, I had that experience. And because of that, that's why I, I so celebrate when you do that, because I got saved in one of those meetings. But it made me very different in my home, very different in my orientation. And, and it was difficult as a 16-year-old to even to explain the newness that had come into my life. But something even more dramatic happened to me a few weeks later. It was about three weeks later that there was another calling. It was like the still small voice of the Lord. And I heard him speaking to me and he said to me, I've called you to be a missionary. A, 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 a missionary? Because I knew nothing about being a missionary. I did not understand its meaning. I, I tried to I tried to try to put it out of my mouth, my mind, and, and dismiss it and cast it away because it was never part of my plan to be involved in God's service and missions. It was there, though. No matter what I did, it was there after high school. It was there after, after rededicating my life to Christ before graduating from college, where at college I'd drifted away from the Lord and I had become like a prodigal. But in my last year in college, I rededicated my life to the Lord. And there that voice came again. I've called you to be a missionary. And it was there while contemplating getting married. And I remember saying to Harriet, my wife, as we were talking about our future together, I remember saying, I have been called to something I don't fully understand. And I don't know where it will lead us together. Now, can you imagine saying that to Someone you want to marry? I don't know <laughs> where this calling will lead us. But thankfully, after 44 years, she's still at my side. <laughs> Pursuing the call to God's mission as a husband and wife did not mean for Herod and I to spend the rest of our lives in another country or to learn to communicate in another language. Or to become totally immersed in a different culture. We learn that there are many ways. Many ways and methods that God will use you to serve his mission. And so I want to talk about something. About God's mission. What it is and what its purpose. It's something that most people don't like I. I didn't fully understand and didn't fully comprehend. There are questions that we have. Is Christian Missions, is missions just Christian adventurism? Is it just going to some exotic country, getting involved in some new experiences? Christian missions to show or demonstrate God's compassion for hurting and, and uh, suffering people? Is it to plant and to build new churches and some overseas location? Is it to alleviate poverty or sickness? And human suffering. And these reasons and others like them are what motivate many people and many of you. And, 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 and some of you have gone on trips 
to give your life, to give your talent, to give your money even in support of missions. But I want to share this morning that there are purposes and there there are reasons beyond those which I've just mentioned, which are far more impacting for God's mission. And I want to say today it is God's mission. Missions was not our idea. It was, it's not a denomination's idea. It is not a sending agency's idea. It is God's idea. It begins with God. It is ordered by God. It is sustained by God. And missions, his mission, will reach its ultimate outcome to the glory of God. Hallelujah. Notice what I say, that this is God's mission. And he has purposes and reasons. And with those purposes and reasons, there's an importance and there's an urgency for God's mission in the earth like we've never seen before. In light of the times, in light of what's happening in the world today, there is an urgency and an importance to understand and to engage with God in his mission. And so I want to provide, because I don't have time. This is a pretty exhaustive study. This is a life journey of understanding God's heart for his mission. But I want to just briefly review three things. The motivation for God's mission. I want to review the nature of God's mission. And I want to review the requirements of God's mission. So let's begin. Where do we begin with all of this? Let's turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 6. The book of Isaiah chapter 6. Now every missions conference, most of them that I go to, somewhere in that conference, this is the passage that they read. And let's begin in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. And I also heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, here am I. Send me. So the call to Isaiah to serve God's mission begins with a revelation. It begins with a very revelation of God's glory. He sees the Lord high and lifted up, enthroned on some heavenly throne. He sees God's royal apparel literally filling the temple of heaven. He saw the majestic and awesome seraphims, powerful angels that surround day and night the throne of God. And then he heard the angelic proclamation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. I just appreciated one of the songs we'd sang that in his presence, we are undone. 
I thought to myself, that's exactly what happened to Isaiah, that he was in the presence of God and he was literally undone. But that is where missions begins. It begins seeing, beholding, experiencing the glory of God. That's where it begins. Notice what happens when Isaiah encounters the glory of God. When he sees the glory and then he hears the words which declare God's glory, he's undone and these things happen. First, Isaiah recognizes his need for God. He says, woe is me. And then he receives a touch from God, symbolized by the coal that came from the altar of God. And then he's made new in God. His sin, his iniquity, whatever limitations or shortcomings in Isaiah's life were dealt with in the glorious presence of God. And then he hears and then he answers the call of God. And finally, Isaiah gives glory to God and is greatly and mightily used of God. I don't know a book in the Bible that is more eloquent in presenting God for who he is than the book of Isaiah. But his calling to be engaged in the ministry and the mission of God begins with a revelation of God's glory. The Bible declares that God is exalted over all the nations. And his glory is above the heavens. What is God's mission? God's mission is to fill the earth. To literally saturate the earth. With the knowledge of his glory. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 14 says. For the earth will be filled. It will be filled. With the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just as the waters cover the sea. Now, I spend more time on this one point because nothing motivates you to serve God's mission more than being passionate for the glory of God. <laughs> nothing. I really appreciate what Rick Warren how Rick Warren defines God's glory in his book that many of us have written, read, The Purpose Driven Life. Rick Warren says God's glory is, listen to these words, that God's glory is the essence of his nature. It is the weight and the heaviness of his importance. God's glory is the radiance of his splendor. God's glory is the demonstration of his awesome power. It is the atmosphere of God's presence. And that's why worship is so wonderful. Because we step into the atmosphere of God's presence. And the thing when we experience that, what comes out of our mouth is glory. Do you see that? It is the expression. God's glory is the expression of his goodness. And all of his intrinsic and external qualities. That is the glory of God. And although most of us will not experience God's glory to the full extent of Isaiah. But God's mission is to reveal his glory. To all people and all nations in order that he might receive glory from all people and all nations. Let me say that again. God's mission is to reveal his glory to all people and to all nations in order that he might receive glory from all people. And from all nations. Turn with me to Psalms chapter 99. Psalms 99. You can see this. In passage and scripture after scripture throughout the Bible. God's mission. 
You can read it. And, but in Psalms 99, it says, beginning with verse 1, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength always also loves justice. You have established equity and you have, ex and you have ex executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship and worship at his footstool. He is holy. God's mission first and foremost is to reveal his glory to all people and nations in order that he might receive glory and honor from all people and all nations. But let's think of another motivation for missions. Why is God so passionate about his mission? I want us to turn to book of Psalms chapter 2. The book of Psalms chapter 2. And these are the words of God himself. God the Father. Let's begin in verse 6. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now understand that this is a father speaking. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me. Now it's the father and the son having a dialogue. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Those are profound words. It is the promise that the father is giving to his son because God is passionately, hear what I'm saying, God is passionately committed to the global honor and the global worship of his son. He is not only committed, God is passionately committed to the global honor and the global worship of his son. And he says to his son, son, ask me and I will give you the nations for your possession. Now, you, you can preach all day long on the implications of that, that declaration. But it is, it is another key to understanding what motivates the heart of God for his mission. That he has promised his son, the nations, as an inheritance. And that is why God's eyes are upon the nations. That's what it says in the book of Psalm 66, 7. It says, God watches over the nations. He has a vested interest in the nations because it will be part of the inheritance that he's giving to his son. And so there's nothing happening in the world today, in any country or any village or among any tribe that he does not carefully look and watch over because he has a vested interest because he has deeded all of these people to his son. It's a very interesting thing. It's, it seems to be so an oxymoron. How in the world could God who says the nations are but a drop in the bucket. They're just like dust to him. He's, he, he's so infinite in who he is. That the nations are just like a drop in the bucket. But you see that the marvelous and the beauty of all this is that God's passion about his son. But he's also passionate about those he has promised to give to his son. 
Listen to the words that God spoke first over Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, beginning with verse 6. Powerful words. The Lord your God has chosen you, and that includes us too, to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, verse 7, it was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all people. But it's because, because the Lord loves you. And so in God's passionate commitment to his son, he is passionately committed to those who are but dust. But he's, I'm, he's I'm committed to you. I'm committed. You are part of the inheritance that I have chosen to give to my son. The nations. For God so loved the world. I first learned that they said, he's so love the world. And so what is this all about? God's passion is our commission to, about, to be about his service. Not our passion, but God's passion. God's passion. is our commission. Missions is not a fixation on traveling and going through airports and eating different foods and, and you know, buying tickets and having some job over there. And as wonderful as it is, that's not all that is to missions. Hear me. Missions is a divine obsession to see the glory of God and his son. Fill the earth. It is a divine obsession to see the father's glory and the son's glory fill every nation and tribe and people group and village and every community. That is the awesome, overwhelming motivation that takes us to that point of Isaiah. Here am I, Lord. Send me. That is the motivation behind that. But the next motivation, the third one, motive missions is establishing and advancing God's kingdom here on earth. Missions is establishing and advancing God's kingdom here on earth. What is God's kingdom? God's rule, God's reign, and God's dominion. Ever since Jesus came to earth, an invasion has been taking place. An invasion of the kingdom of God. For 2,000 years, this invasion has been coming and coming and coming and coming. The rule, the reign, the dominion of the Lord is coming into the earth and no one can stop it. It cannot be stopped. But missions, God's mission is the primary means through which that is occurring. It is God's mission. There's an interesting verse in Acts chapter 14. You can just write this down, verse 16 through 17. It says in the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own way for 2,000 years. And yet, he did not leave himself without a witness. And so that in every country, in every nation, every place, in every region, God says, I am not going to leave myself without someone bearing testimony of who I am. I'm never going to leave myself without a witness. And it's through the testimony of that witness that God is establishing his kingdom in the earth. I was just watching a, a video of Franklin Graham's recent trip to Hanoi in Vietnam. And knowing the history 
the history that our country has been involved in and some of the tragic, many tragic things. When I saw what God did through Franklin Graham in Hanoi, when I saw them being able to, they got the favor of the communist authorities and they put on one of their big evangelistic events in Hanoi. There were so many people, so many Vietnamese that came in Hanoi. And Hanoi came to that place. The place was large, but they had twice as many people outside than they had inside. And then when he gave the altar call, it was flooded with people. I wept. I, I, I literally wept. God will not leave himself without a witness in every country, in every place. That I'm going to testify of who I am, my greatness. There will be a witness because I am establishing my kingdom in the earth. Hallelujah. He's doing it. In Isaiah 43, it says, beginning with verse 8 through 12, God says this. Don't tell me God is not passionate. He says in Isaiah 43, verse 8 through 12, he says, bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, even though they have ears. All the nations have gathered together so that peoples may be assembled. Who among them can declare this and proclaim to us the former things? Let them present their witnesses that they may be justified. Or let them hear and say, it is true. Then he says to his people, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. God in this day and time is purposefully calling the nations to, to account for their lies, for their disorientation, for their just utter lostness. He's calling them to take account of that. But he says, when that happens, I will raise up my witnesses who will declare that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth, and Jesus is the life. You, he says, you are my witnesses, saith the Lord. There will always be someone who will climb some remote mountain, descend into some unknown valley, go into an overpopulated slum, visit a forsaken rural community in order to be a witness of Christ's glory and his redeeming love. There will always be a witness. Hey! There will always be a witness. And this is the thrust. And finally, closing off the motivation for missions. Mission stands at the center of end time events. Let me say that again. Mission stands at the very center of end time events. And missions will accomplish God's ultimate goal and purpose regarding every nation and every country and tribe and people. How do I know this? Because in Matthew chapter 24, as the Lord responds to the, the question that the disciples had, what will be the sign of your coming? And he begins, he begins by giving them a whole list of events, many tragic things, he says, are going to happen. And we see the fulfillment of those things in our day and time. But in, in spite of the enormity of those earth-shaking events, that is not going to determine the end of all things. Not a president, not a governor, not some dictator will determine the end of all times. What will determine the end of all times? It says in Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 14. This is what he says. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then he says, and then. And only then, and then, and then, the end will come. So mission stands at the center of end time events, and it will accomplish God's ultimate purpose concerning the nations. Now, well, let's talk a few minutes about the nature of God's mission. Let me hasten 
the nature of God's mission. Number one, missions is not an option to be considered. It's a mandate to be obeyed. When Jesus said in Matthew 28, go ye into all the world. There's a go in the gospel, right? G-O. <laughs> Missions is no, longer, is no longer a question which we ask, should we do this? Rather, missions is a mandate that declares we must. We must do this. God has given every local church a unique role to play in helping to fulfill God's mission throughout the earth. His mission that begins in Jerusalem. It goes to Judea. It goes to Samaria. And it goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. God has given every local church a mandate and their particular role and their particular function. How to bring about and fulfill not your mission, but God's mission in the earth. One church leader said, the church, the church is God's instrument to communicate the message of Christ to all the people of the world. And the local church is his primary instrument. His primary instrument. The next thing about missions in terms of its, its nature. Missions is confrontational. It is confrontational. Psalms chapter 2 verse 8. Chapter 2, excuse me, we read verse 8. But in Psalms chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, it says, Why are the nations too, so, so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle. The rulers plot together against the Lord and against his anointed one. They say, Let us break their chains, they cry, and free ourselves from the slavery of God. And so, without truly understanding the, 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 the theology of, of end times. The nations understand that there is something happening in the earth that is beyond their control. And many of them are ticked. They're mad. They're angry. They have an angst. And they don't understand why. But they know it has something to do with that man, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. He's he stirs up more controversy. And that's what I said, that missions is confrontational. The fact that this great gospel is going forth and is saving lives and transforming nations is creating great concern and fear and alarm in the demonic realms. But I have this to say. What God said in Psalms 110, my final point on this confrontation. When God sees all of this reaction to what he's doing. In Psalms 110 verse 1, he said, God said to his son, the Lord said to my Lord, you sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. You just sit right there. I, I'm going to take all these, all these people are yelling and screaming. I'm going to make them. Ah! You just sit right here. <laughs> you just sit. It's confrontational. And finally, God's mission is purposeful. Missions, therefore, is not, it's not Christian tourism. <laughs> it is not. <laughs> Our purpose and mission is, is what the Apostle Paul says. He said in Romans 15, verse 20, My ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where a church has already been started by someone else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the Scriptures, where it says, Those who have never been told about him will see, and those who have never heard of him will understand. Now, let me go to the last point. What are the requirements to serve God's mission? My wife always kids me. She says, boy, God really played a joke when he chose you to be a missionary. <laughs> you like your bed too much. You spend too much time in the bathroom. You're very picky about what you eat. And yet God chose you. 
<laughs> I'm just being transparent. I'm not some mighty man of faith. This is God, let's go out there, you know. But look at the 12 disciples who were chosen to be Jesus' disciples. As the Apostle Paul said about them, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble were called. But these were the men, and you could say the women, who literally turned the world upside down. Not ability, but it's my availability. It's my availability that what God is looking for. And he will work things in your life that you don't, you, can, you can't even imagine that, so that you could accomplish work that you couldn't imagine you could do. Number one, he will work in you a commitment to pray. And I'm going to go over these real, real quick, quickly. A commitment to pray. Because it's a factual and fervent prayer that will connect your heart to the heart of God. That's what connects your heart. You see, you can't enter into this with your own heart, with your own ideas, with your own extravagant thoughts about mission. You've got to have the heart of Christ. And that heart only comes through a factual and fervent prayer. That's why there was the upper room experience where the disciples prayed. 120 prayed for 10 days until the Holy Spirit came. But it was through prayer. That's how the Moravian movement was started. A, a movement that was a hundred year prayer meeting. But out of that hundred year prayer meeting, the Moravians sent hundreds of missionaries around the world. That's what happened on Azusa Street. When this one-eyed preacher just began to pray with other believers and they sought the Lord and the Spirit of God came down. But out of that Azusa Street experience, literally thousands of missionaries were sent around the world. The Lord will teach you how to pray effectually and fervently, and you will have his heart to fulfill his mission. The Lord will also fill with you with the Holy Spirit. They had to wait in the upper room because they could not go about the work of God's mission in their own power or in their own strength. The infilling of the Holy Spirit was a continuing reality and a continuing reminder that it's not by might, it's not by power, but it's by my Spirit, saith the Lord. It was a continual reminder. The infilling, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. You're not going to be able to accomplish God's work. It's only going to happen because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And throughout the book of Acts, there's an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. He was the one doing the work. Actually, the book of Acts should be, not, should be titled, not the Acts of the Disciples. It really should be titled, the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And if we are as a church going to go, go back to the future, then we're going to have to depend on the Holy Spirit just as the disciples depended. We're going to have to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, live by the Spirit, pray in the Spirit, be led of the Spirit, and God forbid, quench not, quench not the Holy Spirit. God wants the Holy Spirit to be an ever-present, ever-present reality in your life and my life. Praise the Lord. And finally, with this word, the Lord will teach you how to be an overcomer. The Lord will teach you how to be an overcomer. Most of us already are overcomers that are here this morning. Every day we're learning how to overcome sin. We're learning how to overcome the weaknesses of the flesh. We're learning how to overcome worldly influences and the devil. One Christian leader reminds us that life is war. That life is war. Because the maintenance, just the maintenance of our faith and, and the laying hold on what is ours through faith is a constant fight. But Revelations chapter 3 verse 21 says, He who overcomes... I will grant to him to sit down with me on a throne. As I also overcame 
and sat down with my father on his throne. That's why I so appreciate the leaders of this wonderful church who are so committed to building up the church and imparting the word so, so effectively and so lovingly so that, that every person that, could, that comes into this church, no matter what your background or your situation or your circumstance, that you will be an overcomer. Because that's the only way that it will position you and I to be able to fulfill the service that God has called us to. We must learn and keep learning what it is to be an overcomer. It's amazing that to each of the seven churches addressed in Revelations chapter 2 and verse 3, chapter 2 and 3, there's all a word from Jesus himself to all of those seven churches exhorting them to be overcomers. It is a word equally important to us in the end times. For the sake of our witness, for the furtherance of the gospel, and for fulfilling God's mission in the earth, we dare not shrink back, hide from, run away from trouble and tribulation and problems that Christianity will bring upon our lives. We must learn how to be overcomers. I'm saying this to some of you today who are going to things. I've had to learn. That's one of the biggest lessons that I've had to learn from the Holy Spirit. How to be an overcomer. How to overcome my own ingrained selfishness. How to overcome self-indulgence. How to love and forgive my enemies. And how, and learning how to be a servant to all people. And these are not easy lessons. And I'm not telling you this morning that it's going to be easy or that you won't have to endure some suffering. But I know this. I know this for a fact. That God will never allow you to experience what his grace will not allow you to endure. Let me say that again. God will never allow you to experience what his grace will not allow you to endure. As I was in a vehicle way up in India, in the Himalayas, driving on roads that were just real narrow, with only one car could go around, you know? I mean, it's just, and we were on the edge. There are no, there are no rails, no rails. And the Himalayas are way up there. And I felt my heart racing. I said, I, I felt I was going into a panic attack as we were turning this corner and that corner. And I felt the Lord says, do you think I brought you here to die? God will never allow you to experience what his grace will not allow you to endure. That's why the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. This is very important about being an overcomer. And my prayer this morning is for some of you who are going through things right now in your own lives. You're walking through, you're walking through tunnels. You're, going, you're in a place right now that you just don't understand how in the world will I ever come out of this. But the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, that is why we never give up. And I want to say to you this morning, never give up. Amen. Never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Your spirit, in spite of what you're going through, as long as you put your faith in God, your, your spirit is being renewed, even though outside it doesn't seem like it. It says, for our present, present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs all the troubles. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. But the things we see now will soon be gone. But the things we cannot see will last forever. God teaches us that if we learn 
to overcome. There's a glory which is produced in us. And I want to really leave that with you, that you're going through something right now that you don't understand. God, why am I going through this? God says, I'm producing a glory in you right now. As you're learning how to overcome, as you're learning how to exercise faith, and one day at a time, you're just making it through. You're here today because you've been exercising your faith. God is producing a glory in you. I want to synthesize that. He's been producing a glory in you. And it's that glory, it's that radiance of God in you, which goes far beyond any trouble that you might be experiencing right now. It's, it's that glory that people will see in your lives. They will see the glory that keeps you hanging in there, that keeps you at the job, that keeps you in the school, that keeps you loving God in spite of all the things. They will see in your perseverance a glory that is not earthly in nature. They will see a glory. And this is one of the ways that God is fulfilling his mission when he says, the earth will be filled <laughs> with his glory because it will be Christ in you. It's Christ in you, which is what? The hope of glory. Hey! Christ in you. He's making you an overcomer. One day, when the last city has been reached, when the last nation has been reached, when the last village has been reached, when the last community has been reached, when the last slum has been reached, there will be a shout from heaven. There will be a shout that signals the coming of the Lord. Let's go back to Isaiah 6. And the Lord would say, who will go for us? Who can I send? In Jerusalem, in your Judea, in your Samaria, who will go to the uttermost parts of the earth? I want to give an altar call as Brother Greg leads us in a song. That God is calling. Not looking for, he's not looking for the talented or the super able. He's looking for the available. Sure, we don't all have it together. And there are things in our lives that the Spirit of God is still working on. But what he's saying, if you give me you, I will provide you with what you need. I want to give an altar call right now, and I'm going to invite you. If there's a fresh stirring in your heart, just like when I was young, I, I didn't know where it was going to take me or what it was going to make me to be. I, I just finally said, God, if this is you can use anybody, here I am. Use me. Use me. Jesus said to his disciples, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And I have ordained you that you may go and bear fruit and that your fruit might remain. I want to say to you this morning, I'm speaking to myself too. You didn't choose this. You didn't choose the thing right now that's rising up in your heart. God has put it in your heart. God has chosen you. And he didn't make a mistake. He chose you because of his love for you. Not because of any ability or anything that you may have to take credit. But God says, I just loved you. And I've chosen you to your Jerusalem, to your Judea, to your Samaria. Some of you are already engaged. And right now, the Spirit of God says, yes, you are at the right place and you're doing my work. And today, God is just going to confirm it. 
God's going to give you the power that you need because it's not by your might. It's not by your power, but it's by your, his spirit, saith the Lord. And you are on the brink, I say by the spirit of God, of breakthrough in the name of Jesus. Because God is doing a quick work in the earth. There's something happening in the work of God that's quickening and accelerating. There's an urgency in the spirit of the Lord. And I want to encourage you, never give up. Never give up. Now just raise your hand right now. Raise your hand. We're, we're going to just believe God as your hands are laid. Lord, we want right right now. We, we've spoken. We sang about rain. We sing about fire. And just say, Lord, I want the fire of God right now. Just say, God, I want the fire. God, I want the fire of God right now. Just begin to say it in your own, in your, in your own lips, in your heart. God, I want your fire. I want your fire right now. The passion that you have for the glory, your own glory. Give me that fire for your glory. The glory of the Father. The glory. Give me the fire. I want the fire. We, we sing about the rain. That's the reign of the Spirit as well. God, I want to flourish. I want to be fruitful. I want, I want my life to produce fruit for your glory. Cause the reign of your Spirit to fall on the works of my hand. That I might be fruitful in every place and in everything that I do. Send the reign in my life. Just ask the Lord. Give me the reign of your Spirit. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Now, Father, I just pray right now that the wind of the Spirit would resurrect any brokenness right now, any limitations to your work by anything in our lives that has been broken, that is dry, that needs to be resurrected. We speak to the wind of the Holy Spirit and we speak life life to your people. Just receive that life that only Jesus can bring you. God, I receive your life. Your life in me. I want the glory to be seen in my life. I want that glory in the name of Jesus. Let the life of God be in me. Now, Father, seal your word. It is not my word. It's not a man's word. Lord, seal your word in the hearts of your sons, your daughters, whom you love passionately. Seal it, I pray in Jesus' name. Guard it and protect it. Let it bear the fruit that will abound for your glory. In the name of Jesus. We see you in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.